Paul's favorite name for believers was brethren. He used it at least 60 times in his letters. In fact, in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he used it 27 times. And he uses it to introduce the passage we're going to look at this morning in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren. Verse 14, and we urge you, brethren. Paul saw the local church as a family. Now, what's the nature of a family? Well, we could say several things, but one thing is, it's essential. It's no accident that a child comes into this world in the context of a family. Because without a family to protect and provide for him, he would suffer and he would die. The family is essential. Someone said to me the other day, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's true. In fact, a lot of people who are going to church are not on their way to heaven. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you've got to be an integral part of a church if you're going to be the kind of Christian God wants you to be. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you've got to be an integral part of a church if you're going to grow and develop and serve. I can't say this strongly enough. There is nothing more important to the Christian than a solid local church. You cannot make it as the Lone Ranger. Your spiritual family is essential. But let me say a second thing about the nature of a family. It's a cooperative effort. A healthy family is made up of members who are all contributing. I don't know how it worked in your family, but it wouldn't have gone over real well in my family if I'd come to my parents and said, you know, I like the meals, and I like my room, and I like my allowance, and I like all the amenities, but don't expect me to take out the trash, and don't expect me to do the chores, and don't expect me to obey what you say. You see, families don't operate that way. I like the commercial where the son presents his parents and grandma with a list of stipulations. And they laugh and say, what do you think this is? The Holiday Inn? The family is not a place where you are served. The family is a place where you serve. It's a cooperative effort. And that's evident at the end of this first letter of Thessalonians because Paul closes by giving us a list of chores that we are to do. I've grouped them into four categories, four ways we are to respond in the family of God. Number one, our response to leaders. Number two, our response to others. Number three, our response to circumstances. And number four is our response to teaching. First of all, our response to leaders in verses 12 and 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, if you'll notice, Paul makes this exhortation to all of us, brethren, brothers and sisters, and he's telling us how we ought to respond to a certain group in the church. That group is described as those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you, and give you instruction. Now, in the original language, these three participles are attached to one article. 
So he's not talking about three different groups of people. He's talking about one group of people that were doing all three of these functions. And since the second participle speaks about their authority, he's obviously talking about leaders here. And if you'll notice the pronouns in verses 12 and 13, it's those and them. It's in the plural. And that's consistent throughout the New Testament. We have a plurality of leaders known as elders or overseers. What do they do? Paul points out three things. Number one, they work. They diligently labor among you. Ministry is hard work. Contrary to popular opinion, pastors don't just work one day a week. Elders put in long hours of praying and guiding and caring for people. They work. Secondly, they lead. He says they have charge over you. That's the same word used in 1 Timothy 3, 4, where it speaks about a man who manages his household well. Elders are given the responsibility to manage the church. But then he tempers that with the phrase, in the Lord. What's that tell us? Well, it tells us they're not owners. They have a stewardship to manage that which belongs to God. Paul put it this way in Acts 20, 28, when he spoke to the elders from Ephesus, he said, you are to shepherd the church of God. And then the second thing I think we see from this phrase is that they did not usurp their authority. That responsibility was entrusted to them by the Lord. Paul said it this way in Acts 20, 28, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then the third thing I think we see in that phrase is that they are representing the Lord and they are to lead with his leadership style. Peter spelled that out in 1 Peter 5, 3 when he said to the elders, you are not to lord it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Just as our Lord did, they are to lead by serving. And then the third thing we're told that they do is they instruct they give instruction. I went to Seattle a few weeks ago and I spoke at a family camp. And about halfway through the week, a young man came up to me after one of my messages and he said, you know, I didn't wear a belt today. I wore my suspenders. And I can't figure out what to do with this thing. I'll there we go. Okay, where were we? <laughs> Seattle. That's right. He comes up to me after one of my messages and he says, you know, I like your style because you make preaching look easy. Now, you know what one of the paradoxes is of preaching? In order to make preaching look easy, you have to work hard. To properly teach the Word of God takes hours of study. And that's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Well, that's what the leaders do. What is to be our response to the leaders? Well, Paul points out three things in these two verses. Number one, he says you are to know them. That's in verse 12, that you appreciate them. The word appreciated is actually the word know. Now, hopefully when you get to know them, you will appreciate them. But the word simply means to know. The second exhortation has more to do with appreciate. 
You may be saying, well, I've been here for three months. And that elder over there doesn't even know who I am. Well, maybe that's because he's trying to get to know about 900 other people. You see, it's not simply his responsibility to get to know you. It is your responsibility to get to know him. Do you know the leaders of this church? If not, go up and introduce yourself. Have them over for a piece of pie. I know they love food. (laughs) Know them. Secondly, esteem them. Verse 13. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, the church at Thessalonica had only been around for a few months. And Paul had gone there and essentially started this church from scratch. So it would be very natural for some in the church at Thessalonica to say, well, so-and-so and and I were saved at the same time. And I knew him before he was a believer. What right does he have to tell me what to do? And so Paul is reminding them that those who are carrying the responsibility of leadership should be respected, should be honored, should be esteemed. That's what he meant in 1 Timothy 5, 17 when he said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And notice that phrase. He says you're to do it very highly. That's a strong adverb that means super abundantly or beyond measure. When you esteem them, you're to throw the measuring stick out. And you're to make a big deal about it. Now, when do we usually make a big deal about it? When we don't appreciate something. We holler and we complain and we gripe. Paul is saying, I want you to make a big deal about how much you appreciate the leaders in your local church. You know, I've got a file in my file cabinet. And it says, encouraging notes. And it's getting pretty large. I may have to get a second one. But I never throw away an encouraging note. If you send me a note, I put it in that file. Because when things get discouraging, you know what I do? I pull out the file, and I go through, and I read some of the encouraging notes to say, I'm being esteemed. People appreciate what I'm doing. And that's important for leaders because they work hard to know that they're being respected and esteemed for their work. Not for their personality, for the work that they do. And then the third thing he says in response to leaders is live in peace. End of verse 13. Live in peace with one another. Most couples don't argue too much before they get married. You know why that is? Because they're not living together. You know, when you start living together, you find out things that you never knew existed. I mean, when you're dating, she's made up to a T, her hair is perfect. You go over for a date, she would make you wait downstairs while she puts the finishing touches on. And then you were in for the shock of your life. On the morning of your honeymoon, when you looked over and said, Oh, who are you? 
Why didn't you tell me you had a face like that? And then she goes into the bathroom and she squeezes the toothpaste in the middle. The church is a family. And in our close relationship with each other, we get to see the warts and the pimples and the blemishes. And there are things that other people do that bother us. Now, we can do two things in those situations. We can either accept them or we can reject them. We can either live in hostility or we can live in harmony. And Paul says, live in peace. You say, well, what's that got to do with our relationship and response to leaders? Well, when you are actively living in peace with one another, it makes the leader's job a whole lot easier. You see, it's a whole lot easier to lead sheep who are peaceful. Second category is our response to others in verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Now, Paul gives us four exhortations here, and he names several kinds of people, unruly, faint-hearted, weak. We find them all in the church, and they all require a little bit different approach. Number one, he says, admonish the unruly in verse 14. Now, the word unruly means one who is out of step or one who is disorderly. It was used of a soldier who got out of rank. And when you see a brother who is stepping into sin, what are you to do? Paul says you are to admonish him. Literally, you are to warn him. Now, what's interesting to me is Paul does not give this exhortation to the leaders. He gives this exhortation to all of us brothers. When you see a brother who is unruly, when you see a brother who has stumbled into sin, it's not your responsibility to go tell an elder. It's your responsibility to go to him and warn him. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Aren't you thankful for brothers who love you enough to warn you when you step out of line? My older brother used to do that for me when we were kids. He'd say, you better not do that or you're going to be in big trouble when dad gets home. You see, that's the way that we're to operate in the family of God. And then the second exhortation is encourage the faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted literally means small-souled. And he's talking about those who are discouraged, those who are despondent, those who are ready to quit, those who are ready to throw in the towel. What do you do with people like that? Well, Paul says you encourage them. Literally, this word means you comfort them. When people are down, you don't kick them. You lift them up and you comfort them. And then the third exhortation, help the weak. The weak would be those Paul spoke about in Romans 14 that are weak in faith. They are struggling with their conscience to let go of religious baggage or to let go of legalism. They have not come to the full confidence of the truth that will set them free. And what do you do for that person that's weak? Well, Paul says you help them. That is, you support them. You hold them up. 
They can't get into step themselves because they're weak, and so you need to give them a shoulder to lean on. And then the fourth exhortation is a general exhortation. Paul says, be patient with all men. What is the quality you need when dealing with the unruly and the faint-hearted and the weak and even with all men, Paul says, you need patience. Paul knew that firsthand because that's what God showed to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, he says that when he was the chief of sinners, God demonstrated his perfect patience toward Paul. Now this word patience means long-tempered. It's having a long fuse. And Paul knew how important it was, and Paul knew how difficult it was to demonstrate toward others, and so he expounds on it in verse 15. And there he gives us two elements of being long-tempered. The first is negative. Notice verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Don't get even. Don't retaliate. Now, that's our natural tendency. When someone does evil to us, we want justice. And we want to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Paul says, do not pay back evil for evil. You say, well, then how should I respond? Well, that's the second half of this verse, and that's the positive in verse 15. But always seek after that which is good for one another, and for all men. Instead of doing evil, do good. You see, that's the very opposite of retaliation. And this is a strong exhortation because notice, he says we're to do it always, not just sometimes. We're to do it for one another and for all men, not just for some people. And we're to seek after it. We're not just to do it, we're to pursue it. Now, when do we usually pursue people? When we want to retaliate. Paul says, I want you to pursue people to do good for them. That's real patience. I don't just withhold the evil they may deserve. I go out and seek out to do them good. That's a necessary ingredient in the family of God. A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin, age five, and Keith, age three. The boys began to argue about who was going to get the first pancake. So the mother decided it was a good opportunity to teach them a moral lesson. And so she said, you know, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. Well, Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Keith, you be Jesus. (laughs) Well, Paul would say, let's all be Jesus. Let's withhold retaliation and seek to do good. And then the third category is our response to circumstances in verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, he switches his attention here from our response to people to our response to circumstances. And we see that in verse 18 where he uses the phrase, in everything. Now Paul lays out three responses we're to have to circumstances. Number one is joyful. Verse 16, rejoice always. 
You say, but Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm single and lonely. And Paul says, yes, I do. Rejoice always. You say, but Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm struggling not making as much money as I should. Paul says, yes, I do. Rejoice always. You say, but Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm being rejected because of my faith. Paul says, yes, I do. Rejoice always. You say, but Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm I'm struggling with a physical ailment that won't go away. And Paul says, yes, I do. I have a thorn in my flesh. Rejoice always. Paul did not live a life that we would consider to be fun. He was beaten up, persecuted, imprisoned, and eventually beheaded. But in the midst of those circumstances, Paul could say, rejoice always. You say, you mean I can rejoice in the midst of pain? I can rejoice in the midst of suffering? I can rejoice in the midst of loss? Absolutely. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that he was as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You see, even when there are tears of heartbreak in my eyes, there should be an underlying fountain of joy. Why is that? Because joy is not attached to circumstances. Joy is not attached to circumstances. Paul put it this way in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, negative circumstances can't erase my joy. Sin can erase my joy. That's why David, after his adultery with Bathsheba, made this prayer in Psalm 51.12. He said, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. You see, sin deceives us by promising us fun, but in reality, it steals our joy. Sin can take our joy, but circumstances cannot take away our joy. You say, well, how can I rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances? Well, let me suggest two reasons. Number one, because difficult circumstances cannot change my relationship with the Lord. Paul asked the question in Romans 8.35, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. If nothing is able to separate us from the love of Christ, then which circumstance can take your joy? You see, the worst circumstance of all is death. And Paul dealt with that in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. He said, whether we're dead or alive, we're going to be caught up with the Lord. We are not looking for the undertaker. We are looking for the upper taker. But then there's a second reason why we can rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that is because difficult circumstances not only cannot change my relationship with the Lord, but difficult circumstances can change me. Remember what James said in James chapter 1? He said, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and when endurance has its perfect work, it will bring you to maturity and completeness. 
You see, when hard times come, don't say, why me? Say, why not? We should welcome trials. In fact, we should rejoice in trials because they lead to maturity. And so my first response to circumstances is to be joyful. Second response to circumstances is to be prayerful. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, does that mean I should be on my knees 24 hours a day? No. Some in Thessalonica had decided to get up on the rooftop and and, uh, pray, come Lord Jesus, 24 hours a day. And Paul said to them in chapter 4, verse 11, get a job. You see, if I were praying on my knees 24 hours a day, I would be neglecting my other responsibilities. That's not what Paul is saying here. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that beyond our regular times of worship and beyond our extemporaneous times when we call out in need, we should be living our life in continual communion with the Lord. We should always have the receiver off the hook. We should live our life in an attitude of prayer. Because what is prayer expressing? Prayer is expressing praise to God and dependence upon God. And I should be going through life taking every step as an expression of both my praise toward God and my dependence upon Him. That is praying without ceasing. And then thirdly, he says, you're to be thankful, verse 18. In everything, give thanks. Now, thankfulness is simply a matter of perspective. Whenever they interview someone who has survived a disaster, what do they always say? I'm just thankful to be alive. I see every day as a gift. Well, let me remind you that you have survived an eternal disaster. You have been delivered from the flames of hell. And what should be your attitude? You should be saying, I'm just thankful to be alive. And not only is every day a gift, but eternity is a gift. And you see, the temporal bumps along the way cannot change that. In Romans 8, 28, Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. If God is causing all those things to work together for good, then I can give thanks for all things. And Paul says in this verse that this is God's will for you. If you come to me and want to know what God's specific will for you is, I can tell you three specific things. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks. You see, that is our response to circumstances. And then the fourth category is our response to teaching in verses 19 to 22. Notice verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, one of the figures used for the Spirit of God is fire. And how do you quench fire? Well, you dampen it. You don't let it burn. And what is it that dampens the Spirit of God? It's sin. We dampen, we quench, we extinguish the Spirit of God when we fail to obey Him. 
And what does that mean in this context? We'll go back to verse 16. We quench the Spirit when we're not always rejoicing. We quench the Spirit, verse 17, when we don't pray without ceasing. We quench the Spirit, verse 18, when we're not giving thanks in everything. And then he looks ahead to verse 20, and he says, Do not despise prophetic utterances. We quench the Spirit when we despise the teaching of God's Word. Now, when the churches gathered in the first century, they didn't have the completed New Testament. And so they gathered together, and certain ones who had the gift of prophecy would stand up, and they would proclaim God's message to the church. We have the same gift today, but today it's not used to proclaim new revelation because we have the completed revelation, the Word of God. Today it is used to explain and expound God's truth. But in that context of the early church, it's easy to see how false teaching would arise. And though this Thessalonian church was such a young church, false teaching had already been introduced there. We see that clearly in the second letter in chapter 2 where Paul says, You have been disturbed by certain prophets who are saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And so in response to that, some in the church at Thessalonica were taking the position, We're just not going to listen to anybody. So Paul says in verse 20, Do not despise prophetic utterances. What should they do instead? Verse 21. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. They were to listen to teaching and they were to examine it carefully. That's what the Bereans did with Paul in Acts 17.11. It says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things or so. Paul says, listen to teaching, examine teaching, and then he says, when you find that which is good, hold on to it. And when you find that which is evil, abstain from it in every form. Now we need this exhortation today more than ever. Because we live in a culture that is very non-discriminating. People today take great pride in being open-minded have you seen the commercial where they're having a company brainstorming meeting and they just keep saying, there are no bad ideas. There are no bad ideas. Well, that could be the motto for our day. There are no bad ideas. Everything sounds good. But see, we cannot fall for that in the church because there are bad ideas. And we need to be discerning between truth and and falsehood. We need to be discerning between what is good and what is evil. That is the proper response to teaching. You say, well, Paul's given us a whole long list of chores here. He's given us a whole lot of commands. How are we going to do all this? Well, he closes this letter by reminding us that we have four resources. The first one is prayer. Notice verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having given these commandments, Paul breaks into prayer. And notice how specific he is. He prays for our spirit, soul, and body. And you know what's interesting to me? How do we say that phrase? We say body, soul, and spirit, don't we? 
You know why we say that? Because we think the body is the primary thing. Well, say, I am body, soul, and spirit. What does God say? You are spirit, soul, and body. Why? Because the primary thing is your spirit. And that's really what Paul is primarily concerned about here. And so his prayer request on on their behalf is that they might be set apart entirely, preserved complete, and that they will be blameless when Jesus comes back. You say, well, that's a pretty big prayer. I mean, that's a pretty tall order. Well, not really. Look at verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Paul is saying this is the very thing that God has called you for. So I can say with confidence that he will be faithful to bring it to pass. And then notice verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Paul prays for them, and then he says, I need you to pray for me. Paul was not beyond prayer. Now, you can't pray for Paul today, so I would ask you to pray for me. And pray for the staff, and pray for the elders. In a growing church like this, Satan would love nothing else than to see one of our leaders fall. Pray for me. Pray for us. Continually, We need that prayer. We need you to pray for us that we would be set apart, that God would preserve us, that we would be blameless in the day when Jesus comes back. And so the first resource is prayer. The second is fellowship. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now that was a customary greeting in that day. It still is in the Middle East. Men came up and kissed men on either cheek. Now, we don't really take that literally. If I went up and kissed one of the elders, you would probably say, hmm. (laughs) What Paul is saying is, we are to greet one another with affection. We are to be close in our unity and our fellowship. Now, before I move on, I know some of you are saying, well, I think I just found my life verse. Well, I want you to notice this is a holy kiss, not a sensual kiss. This is a holy kiss, not a European kiss. We are to greet one another in a way that is holy before God because it's fellowship that he's talking about here. And then the third thing is the word, verse 27. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Paul is not just suggesting that you might want to read this letter. He uses a word that indicates the idea of an oath. He is obligating them before the Lord that they read this letter. Why? Because it is the word of God. And the word of God is not just for some elite in the church there. He says it's to be read to who? All the brethren. And then the fourth resource is grace. Verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He opens this letter in chapter 1 and verse 1 with grace. And now he closes this letter with grace. And to Paul, Christianity is grace from beginning to end. And so Paul tells us four ways we're to respond in the family of God. Our response to leaders, know them, esteem them, live in peace. Our response to others, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient toward all men. Our response to circumstances, be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. Our response to teaching, discern between the good and the evil. And then Paul points to four resources, prayer, fellowship, the word, and the grace of God.
We've got all the resources. Let's cooperate and do our chores in the family of God.